Well, thank you for braving the cold. It's good to be here together, to worship together, uh, and to turn together to God's Word. Um, we've come through the first two chapters of Exodus, and as I mentioned last week, uh, we've, we've come to the significant turning point in the book, a, a key transition through the narrative. Um, chapters 1 and 2 are kind of the introduction, setting it up. This is, this is where we begin, uh, and then... And so in, in that we saw uh, the suffering of the Israelites in Egypt and how God worked through the, the weakness uh, of the people of Israel, of uh, Moses' mother and, and sister, uh, and worked through even the wickedness of Pharaoh himself to, to protect and to raise up uh, Moses, who would be the rescuer of Israel. Last week we saw Moses on this divine detour as God pulls him aside and he's eager to jump in to set things right, to do it on his own strength and his own timing, and that backfired. Um, Pharaoh wanted to kill him. The Hebrews rejected him, and so God took him off into the wilderness, into Midian for 40 years um, to be humble, to be refined, to be prepared for what the Lord had in store for him. And then verses 24 and 25 of chapter 2 were the, the climax of that introduction. It says, And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel and God knew. And if you were here last week, you know each of those words just comes with power behind them. God is setting this up. He's about to move. He's about to act on behalf of his people. And so as we move into chapter three, we kind of round the corner out of the introduction and into action. And chapter three is God calling Moses. And I think it's really cool uh, timing the way that God sets this up for us. And as we talked last week about Moses in the wilderness and, and wondering and, and trying to find direction in his life, um, and waiting on God's timing, uh, I know there were a number of you that said that really resonated with you. That kind of made sense to where you were at in life. And uh, and I think we all do at different times. We, we have that feeling of where, where do we go from here? What am I doing here? How do we move forward? What's my purpose in life? God, what are you, what are you doing? Why am I here? And, and as much as we ought to be patient with God's timing, uh, we don't want to miss God's mission. We don't want to miss what he's called us to. Uh, and so this week we see uh, the way out of the wilderness. We see God calling Moses and, and moving Moses from, from meandering in the wilderness onto mission. And I think we need that. We all need that. Um, there's a lot that we can take from this as we seek to move faithfully in our lives from, from preparation and, and learning and growing into action. We were made for purpose. We were made for, for passion, for, for drive, uh, for mission. And looking at the call of Moses, I think, is very helpful for us. So um, to be clear, as we come through this, the call of Moses is unique. Um, Moses' call is not your call. Um, you are not called to go to Egypt and, and speak with the king. Um, you'll end up in an insane asylum there, blaming it on me. So let's just get this straight. Um, Moses' call is not your call. That's not how we read the Bible. But there are a lot of things in here as we unpack this, the way that God works. And, and as we look at, at so many other things through the book of Exodus, um, the call of Moses is, is paradigmatic. It, it's a paradigm, a, a model, a mold, a pattern by which God works. This is how he calls his people. And so if you look at the, the call of Moses here in chapter 3 and you lay that 
alongside passages where God calls other servants, Joshua, Gideon, Samuel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Um, You'll see parallel after parallel after parallel. Some simple, small, um, Moses, Moses, Samuel, Samuel, Saul, Saul. Um, This is the way that God calls people. And uh, so we're going to look at the call of Moses and uh, what that means for us as we seek to serve him, as we seek to, to move our lives increasingly from meandering to mission. We're going to hit all of chapter 3 this week, um, so we have our work cut out for us. I hope you packed a lunch. Uh, I have a flight to catch at 6, so you'll make it home for dinner, um, but uh, it's a big chunk. Uh, turn in your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 3. Uh, if you don't have a Bible on you, just slip up your hand. One of our ushers would get one to you. Um, we want you to have God's Word open on your lap. Um, our goal is that we walk out of here collectively um, more convinced of the truth of God's Word and the wisdom of God's Word. Um, not, not any of my wisdom. I don't have a lot of that. Um, my, my foundation is God's Word, and that's our goal is just to take away uh, what He has written for us. Um, as you turn there, I hope you love it. I love it um, that your Bible's hopefully starting to get a crease there in Exodus. Give it another couple months, and you're going to put your Bible down, and it's just going to flip open on its own to Exodus. Um, One of the residual benefits, I think, of working through God's Word as it was intended to be used. Um, There's a reason that chapter 3 happens after chapters 1 and 2. And so we want to be faithful in looking at books of the Bible, the way they were written, and and seeing what God has for us there. And if you're on the reading plan that we're reading together, um, you've just come through the first half of Exodus this week, so you know even where we're going. You've got that kind of context in your mind. Um, We're going to look at chapter 3, and I want to just start verses 1 to 6. And uh, we see moving from from meandering to mission, we're called primarily to worship. Look at these first verses. Let me read them for us. Moses writes, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock into the west side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flaming fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight and why the bush is not burned. And then the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, and God called to, out of, called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. And then he said, Do not come any nearer. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. So we're reintroduced to Moses in chapter 3, and we find him fully humbled. Uh, He's shepherding the flock of his father-in-law. If you remember, shepherds were looked down on in Egypt. That was the kind of the bottom rung of society. Uh, And it's not even his sheep. It's not even his father's sheep that he might one day inherit. It's his father-in-law's sheep. He's just a hired hand. He's a nobody. We don't really know exactly where he wandered to, uh, but we're told that he went to the west side of the wilderness. Um, Some translations will say the far side of the wilderness. It seems that he's gone significantly further than he usually would go looking for green pasture. And uh, probably, my guess is, onto the Sinai Peninsula. Um, Grant, you have that map. Can we throw that up? So this is a map we looked at last 
week, he went from Goshen up there, meandered through here. That's about um, 300 miles um, down to Arabia. This map has Mount Sinai down here in Midian. That's where some people think it might be. Um, my guess is it says he traveled west. He's going this way. He already lives in here. I, I think he has to head over to the Sinai Peninsula. Um, but we don't know. We don't know where that mountain is. There's a lot of conjecture. There's a lot of people uh, snooping that out. Everyone thinks they know it for sure, and they have the crucial evidence. It, the problem is it just completely contradicts the other guy's crucial for sure evidence. Um, but we're not told, and I think that's kind of on purpose. It's, it's not the point. Um, he comes to Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. Um, but at that point, it was nothing. It was just another mountain. He didn't know. Um, a lot of things would happen there, significant things. And so the, the, read, the people reading this would look back and go, oh, that mountain, we know that mountain through the stories. Um, but it was not significant uh, until God was there. And it's there on Mount Horeb, um, later called Mount Sinai, um, the angel of the Lord appeared to him. Now that's significant. When you see the angel of the Lord, you got to take note. If it's an angel, that's one thing. If it's an angel of the Lord, that's, that's just an angel. Um, it's the angel of the Lord. Pay attention. And you'll notice the angel of the Lord speaks with the authority of God time and time again. And we'll see that very clearly here. The angel of the Lord turns out to be Yahweh. It's him. That's a curious thing. He presents himself as an angel, a, a messenger from the Lord. Um, often appears throughout the Old Testament in the form of a human, um, speaks with the authority of God himself. I think we pair that with the fact that the angel of the Lord never shows up again after Christ is born. Um, I think it's Jesus. It's the second person of the Trinity um, coming down. This is what we call the pre-incarnate Christ. And there's no hard textual evidence for that, but it, but it sure seems to make sense. One thing we know for sure, this is God himself. He's presenting himself in the flames of this bush that's burning, but not burned up. And as you might imagine, uh, that got Moses' attention. Um, the, the book of Exodus is frustrating because a lot of people want to pull the miracle out of it. And they want to explain it away. And, and so a lot of the commentaries will say it was, it was probably a bush that had maybe died and the leaves had gone brown and the sun was shining through it. And I'm like, do you think Moses is stupid? He's been in the wilderness for 40 years and he says it's a bush that's burning, isn't burned up. And he goes to take a closer look. This is something amazing. Um, it's God. It's God doing a miracle to get Moses' attention. And as he draws near, looking at this strange thing, what's going on here? The bush speaks. Moses, Moses. We're not told if he, if he shrieked like a girl and threw his staff into the air. Um, but if you can imagine looking carefully and, and cautiously approaching this book and it, bush and it, and it spoke to you, um, that would be terrifying. He takes a moment to compose himself and he responds, talks back to the bush, wondering, am I crazy? Uh, here, here I am. And that's where everything changes. Don't come any closer. Take off your sandals, Moses. The place that you're standing is holy ground. Oh. Moses' heart skips a beat. Before he can answer back, the voice continues, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And when Moses hears that, he is, he's overwhelmed. And it says he hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. 
Moses' call from meandering to mission begins with a clearer view of who God is. A clear understanding, not even just an understanding, but a heart realization, a a confrontation with the glory of God. He's overwhelmed with awe and wonder in the presence of God. Give another familiar calling passage. One of the first words that come out of Isaiah's mouth in Isaiah 6. He, He sees the Lord and then he says what? Woe is me. Woe is me. For I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the Lord. He trembles in the presence of God Almighty, the Lord of hosts. He's overwhelmed at the greatness of God. That's where mission begins. That's where meaning and purpose in life starts. Ever feel like you're wandering in the wilderness? You're a little bit lost Meandering, not quite sure, why, why am I here? What am I doing here? What's my, what's my purpose in life? I guarantee you our, our lack of sense of purpose and meaning in life is directly, directly connected to, related to a perspective of the greatness of God. Those who stand overwhelmed in awe and wonder at the majesty of God derive from that a purpose in life, a meaning, a sense of this is where I belong. This is what I'm made for. This is who I am. Finding your way, knowing where you're going is all about reference points, right? It's all about knowing where you are in relation to certain things around you. And so if you're going to drive to Calgary, you need to know where you are in reference to Calgary. And you'll probably use uh, Didsbury and Airdrie as reference points along the way. If someone's giving you directions to a place that's particularly hard to find, they're going to give you key reference points. Drive until you see such and such a building and turn there or or keep the river on your left-hand side. They're going to use those markers. It's really hard to figure out where you are and where you're going if you use reference points that are constantly moving. If your life is rooted on, based out of what other people think. If you rely on what's popular and what's cool. If you judge where you are in reference to what is deemed successful, what, what is, the world says is a, is a happy life. If you want to have that rock-solid purpose in life, meaning in life, if you want to have confidence in, in where you are and who you are and where you're going, you need to set your eyes on something immovable, something that does not change. And that's God. So often, we go first to our feelings how do I feel about this decision? Our feelings are so fickle, so fickle. We need to set our eyes on God. We need to be amazed by his glory and look to his word. What does he say? That's our reference point. We need to set our eyes on him and to see God, to really know who he is, is to worship. It is to be overwhelmed, to have our hearts bursting in awe and wonder. Be like Moses and Isaiah, breathless in the presence of God. We're created to worship. We're called to worship. Moses will come back to this principle, as Josh mentioned later uh, in chapter 33. uh, Israel rebels against God. They build the, the golden calf and the Lord's ready to destroy them. And Moses' world is turned upside down. What do I do? I thought I knew where we were going. Everything made sense. What now? And he's terrified. What does he ask of God? Show me your glory, God. Let me see it again, Lord. 
Remind me who I am in reference to you. Remind me of who you are so that I can go forward from here. So how do we get there? How do we come to that place of awe and wonder of God? That's, that's not an easy question. I think it's a lot easier for us than it was for Moses. If you look at verse 5, what does the Lord say to Moses? Do not come any, what? Closer. Don't come any closer. Moses was told, don't approach God. Don't come into the holy place. Now, it has nothing to do with the place. And this was an arbitrary mountain. God doesn't live on Mount Sinai. Um, the tabernacle where God's presence would dwell, it moved all over the wilderness for 40 years. Uh, the temple mount that's so disputed right now, um, those who go to the, to the western, the, the wailing wall there, they have it wrong. It doesn't matter. There's nothing there. It's not a special place. What made it special was that God's presence was there. God's glory was there. When Jesus died on the cross, the curtain was torn from top to bottom of the temple. The Holy of Holies was opened. And God was saying, this is not how you come to my presence anymore. This is no longer where my glory will dwell. My glory now dwells in Christ. So Hebrews 10 Therefore, brother, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Moses, don't come any closer. You draw near. Draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Moses was kept at arm's length and we are invited in Christ to draw near to God. We can do what Moses was not able to do. A way far greater than Moses ever imagined. Come into the Holy of Holies, to come into God's presence. Not a temple, not on a mountain, not some sacred building, not, not through a priest, but through Jesus Christ by faith, drawing near to God through faith in Jesus. I'm going to move from meandering to mission. We, we first and foremost have to begin with worship, understanding who God is in His holiness, understanding what it means to come to Him in Christ meditating on that, letting that saturate your heart and your mind to see him and to stand in, in overwhelmed awe and wonder at who he is. We're called to worship. That's, that's job number one. Everything starts with worship. Mission begins with and springs out of worship. And then and only then flowing out of that worship, we're called to action. We're called to, to go. Look at verses 7 to 10. And the Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey in a place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. 
It's amazing. God recounts what he's already said, that he's seen his people. He said compassion on them in their suffering, and he's coming down. He's going to personally intervene. And look at the pronouns there. I have seen, I have heard, I am concerned, I have come to rescue. And the verse 10, come, now I will send you. Wouldn't it be easier, Lord, if you just kind of went on your own? Why don't you just take this one, God? You do it. Why wouldn't God just handle this himself? We all have kids. We know how hard it is to have somebody help you sometimes. He said he would do it, and yet consistently from the very beginning, um, the Lord has this strange propensity, this odd tendency to use human agency. He deliberately chooses not to act directly, but to use feeble and weak humans. He did it with Moses, and he continues to do it today. That's why Jesus, after his death, said to his followers, Now go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He could have done it himself. How cool it would have been if, if Jesus had stuck around, if he would be here building his church. We'd far rather come and listen to Jesus preach. But he didn't. He has this propensity to use human agency for whatever reason. That's his plan. He makes that clear again to us in Romans 10, verse, uh, chapter 10, verse 13, a verse uh, we all know. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And there's verse 14, it doesn't say, uh, so I've written it across the sky. Or, or so I have personally appeared to every human being that they might know. It says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And the Lord says, how will they call on him they've never believed? And how are they going to believe in whom they've never heard? And how are they going to hear unless someone preaches to them? You go. You go. God says, how are they going to know unless you go and tell them? I'm going to rescue my people. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I will rescue them from their slavery to sin. I'm going to save people from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. No, you go do it. You go with this mission. This is our call. I think putting these two together pushes us back to the words that stick in my head from when uh, Shannon Hurley was here. He said that our, our lack of evangelistic fervor is tied to a lack of love for Christ. That's painful, but I think it's pretty simple. We talk about what we love. We're passionate about what we love. I love Jesus. I'm just, I'm just scared to talk to people about him. But look at this. We're called to worship, to stand in awe of the glory of God in Jesus Christ, and then to move in that awe found in God to mission to spreading that glory. The more we love it, the more we talk about it. The deeper the worship, the greater the witness. And so the, the tendency then is to try to skip worship. We think, I got I to gotta just grit my teeth then and, and go out and, and get on mission, but don't skip what feeds that. We need to see God more clearly. We need to begin with a fuller worship that then overflows into mission overflows into being this messenger as we've been called to be. But the more we love it, the more we talk about it. That's going to look different in everybody's life. Um, different people have different gifts, different abilities, different ways of speaking. 
But we're all called to the same mission. We're all called go and make disciples. Lost people save, save people mature, mature people multiplied, all to the glory of God. That's why we're here, church. We're called to worship, and then we're called to action. Um, but you knew I wasn't going to be able to fit a whole chapter into three points, so I cheated. We're doing subpoints this week. Uh, so 2A, then, inside that call to action is a call to trusting in Him. It's a call to trusting in Him. Verses 11 to 15. But Moses said to God, Who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. He said, but I will be with you. And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you, that when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of their fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am remembered through all generations. That's good news. I don't know if you feel that as good news, but that's really good news. I feel that. If both the the purpose of Moses' time in the wilderness and the proper response to standing in awe and wonder of the presence of God is humility. And Moses' first question should be totally expected. Who am I? God, you've so humbled me. I don't know that I can do this. Who, Who am I to go to Pharaoh? Who am I to go back to the people of Israel? They've rejected me. I'm nobody. Why me? You sure about this, Lord? feel that? I feel that. I'm sure Moses was thinking back to his first attempt when he, when he killed the Egyptian slave master and the, the one of the Hebrews then lashed out of him. Who made you prince and judge over us? Who am I to be your messenger? I've blown it already. And the Lord says to him, it's not about you. It's about me. His answer is simple. It's not about you. I will be with you, Moses. It's not about who you are. It's about who I am. So Moses presses in a little harder. Okay, Lord, who are you? If they ask me who has sent me, if they ask me what is his name, what should I tell them? And it's clear the way this question is asked is it's not what do I call you. It's not about God's title. It's about who he is. And the idea of the name in the Eastern culture was was this idea of a person's essence. Who are you? And here for the first time, God reveals his name to Moses. This is huge. He says, I am who I am. This is what you were to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. I am who I am. That's where we get the name Yahweh. That's our best guess at how to pronounce that, that Hebrew word. Uh, Hebrew is a tricky language. It's been dead and resurrected. Um, and so Yahweh is these four syllable or four consonants, essentially Y-H-W-H. Um, 
out of a misguided respect for God's name, trying to obey the commandment not to take the Lord's name in vain. Um, the Jews refused to say God's name at all. And so the vowels that go with that consonant have been lost. When, you, when they wrote Hebrew, they just wrote the consonants and they all kind of knew the vowels and filled them in. Um, the vowels were added to our text later uh, for our help. Um, but by that point, they were lost. And so what vowels do we put in there? So it's interesting that Jehovah's Witnesses are so bent on the name Jehovah. Um, that's the one name we know for sure it isn't. Um, that was taking the vowels from Adonai, which means Lord, and kind of imposing them onto the consonants for Yahweh. So it's kind of mashing them together. Um, Yahweh's our best guess. But it's significant. You need to take note as you're reading along and you see the word Lord like that in all capital letters. That's your translators tipping you off. The word there is Yahweh. It's the name of God. And, uh, and so you need to, to kind of see that in your mind and how often it says, I am the Lord your God. He's saying, I am the I am. He's referring back to this title. And yet it's interesting in giving this answer, I am who I am, God is avoiding the question. Really, He's not really answering Moses in some ways. He's saying, I'm totally other. I'm totally unique. I can't be defined by anything else, Moses. I am what I am. It's this statement of, of God's self-existence. His aseity would be the, the theological term for it. He doesn't, he doesn't depend on anything else for his existence. We need food and air and space and time, and God doesn't need those things. He's self-existent. It's a statement of his, his otherness. He is transcendent. He's not like us. He's unlike anything else in all of creation. His existence and essence are outside of our understanding. Moses, you can't even begin to wrap your mind around what I am. I, I just am what I am. And so the Mormons would say that we are children of God, and they don't use that in a metaphorical sense. They say we are actually children of God. And so if you obey God and, and follow God and, and do what God says, you could become like God. And one day you could become yourself a God. I am who I am says, uh-uh, not going to happen. I am God alone. There is none like me. Never has been, never will be. Isaiah 45, 5 says, I am the Lord, all caps. I am the I am. And there is no other Beside me, there is no God. So the gods of the Egyptians are represented by these different animals. They, they inhabit, there's the God of the river and there's the God of the livestock. And, and so we can understand those gods in that way. The gods of the Greeks were just essentially um, really, really rough guys, big dudes, impressive men uh, with some superpowers and impressive women. This God... He's not like that. You can't represent him like that. You can't talk about him. Uh, you can't talk about what he is like because he's not like anything. That's why you shall make no image of the Lord because there's nothing that makes any sense. There's nothing that comes anything close. Anything you would use as an image of God is only distracting. He is what he is. And of course, this is significant here. Because as we'll see, God's saving of his people, this whole act of the Exodus, is meant as a revelatory act. God is saying, you want to know who I am? Watch and see. I'll show you who I am. I am a God who saves. He's revealing himself through his actions. If you want to know who I am, watch this. And it's significant here for Moses because 
that God, that God who is above all, who is totally outside of creation, who's not bound by anything in this world, is the God who would be with him. You don't think you're strong enough. You don't think you're the right person. You don't think you can do it, Moses. That's fine. The I am will be with you. What kind of confidence would Moses have had then? I can do anything. This is, this is the mission and the great I am is coming with me. Unstoppable. Unquestionable. And yet we ought to realize we have something greater. Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses. We so easily look at Moses and think, wow, he got to speak with God. God promised him, I'll be with you. But we have something far greater than Moses ever could have understood. We have God in us. We have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. You have that great I am in you. How much more confidence ought we to have? This mission of sharing the gospel, of being witnesses, is not for people who have it all together. It's not it. We so often, again, say, well, uh, that's, for, that's for somebody else who has all the answers, the guy that's got his life all figured out and everything's perfect and, and nobody's going to question him. The one that can give every theological answer, the one that can quote half the Bible in, in response to the questions, no. Now, God actually chose not to use Moses when he was in the position of power and influence and, and impressiveness when he was the prince in Egypt. Now he sent him out to the wilderness. He humbled him. He made him a shepherd. Then he used him. It's a mission for nobodies. It's a mission for the weak, for the lowly, for the humble, for those who don't have it all together. For those who are able to say, I'm a sinner like you and I need a Savior. Let me show you this great God. We're called to action, trusting not in ourselves, but that He is at work through us. That ought to give us great courage and and unstoppable hope. So we're called to action, trusting in Him, and then to be, we're called to action, proclaiming Him. That is the mission. That's the details of what we are called to do, proclaiming Him. Let's pick up at verse 16. Moses is told, go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go a three-day journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Moses was to go back to the Israelites, back to the people of God, his chosen ones, and tell them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, has sent me, the one who made a covenant with you. He's, He's appeared to me. And look carefully, he doesn't speak for himself. He doesn't say what what he thinks. He repeats God's words. This is what God has said. 
The Lord said, I have watched over you and have seen what you've been done to you in Egypt and I have promised to bring you up out of your misery. God will rescue you from your slavery. That's the message. It's, it's the gospel. It's everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And specifically, the action that we're called to is to proclaim this message, to broadcast it. Listen to how consistent this is. Matthew 24, 14 The gospel of this kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the world as a testimony to all nations. Matthew 28, 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Mark 16, 15, he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole of creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. Luke 24, 46, and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Acts 1.8, but you will receive power and the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. A witness proclaims. Don't lose sight of this. This is our mission. To go and proclaim, to speak this good news. All of us are going to do that in, in different ways. We have, again, different gifts, different abilities, different personalities. We need to keep in mind there are so many good things that we could be doing, but they can become a distraction. They can pull us off course. You could feed the hungry the rest of your life and not proclaim the gospel and fail utterly as a church. It's so easy to miss this somehow. Our job is to proclaim this gospel. That's our objective. Um, but again, not only to proclaim, but to make disciples. It's to influence people. It's to have people come and come to a saving knowledge of who Jesus is, to become a disciple. Say, I want to follow that gospel. And so uh, there are ways that we could proclaim that that are not persuasive, they're not winsome and endearing, that don't point to the grace and the love of Christ. That's our goal. We want to make disciples to be witnesses to this call of God come to salvation in Christ. Then look at this. It's not only to be proclaimed to the Israelites. He's proclaim it to Pharaoh. Moses, along with the elders of Israel, are to walk into the courts of Pharaoh and declare the Lord, the I am, the God of the Hebrews has sent me to you. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. The reference to the three-day journey threw me off. Um, and, and I had to dig into that a little bit. It seems like he's lying to Pharaoh. That's not actually what he wants, right? They're, they want to leave. They're going away. They are not going to be Pharaoh's slaves anymore. So why wouldn't he set that out at the beginning um, rather than mislead him saying a three-day journey? Um, looking at it closer... Um, this phrase, a three-day journey, is kind of the eastern shorthand for a really long trip. Basically, it's like we would say, I'm going out of town. It doesn't mean I'm walking to the edge of town. It means I'm going away. I'm out of country. I'm, I'm gone. I want to go a long way. And so the message to Pharaoh is not we're only going three days. It's that we're going out of Egypt. We're leaving. We're going out of town. And he says to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, to worship the great I am. And if you remember, um, this is a, a direct confrontation to Pharaoh. Uh, we talked about how Pharaoh presented himself as a god. 
Chapter 1, when he made the Israelites his slaves, he used language that was just pregnant with this idea of worship. He's trying to make them worship him in their slavery. And Moses and the elders of Israel, of Israel are saying, we're not going to be your slaves anymore. We're going to worship the true God. We will be his slaves. And he proclaims God's salvation first to the Israelites And then he and the Israelites together proclaim God's salvation to their oppressors. And so as we look at Exodus and ask, what is this? How do we understand this? What does this mean for us? Looking at it through the lens of this this living metaphor, we've talked about how this story is our story. The story of the Exodus is the story of salvation. Um, What does this mean? Well, I think as we poke in a little closer, it becomes clear. What does Pharaoh represent? What does Egypt represent? If you remember, Egypt was the son of Ham, this cursed son of Noah, this line of curse. As we went back to to Genesis 3.15, the great promise of the rescuer would come. And the Lord said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so we see this battle between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of Satan. And and Egypt represents that cursed offspring, the offspring of Satan. And for crying out loud, Pharaoh wears a snake on his hat. He's representing Satan. And God is going to free his people from slavery to sin and Satan. And so we're to proclaim salvation in Christ, our rescue to our sin, to Satan. Preach the gospel to your sin. What does that mean? What's the logic here? It's saying, I don't serve you anymore. It's saying there's a radical difference to those who are God's chosen people. The great I am has rescued me out of your bondage, sin. I don't live for you anymore. I'm going a three-day journey from here. You don't have power over me. It's significant. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord? Lord, you don't do what I say. Those who love Christ, those who are his people being rescued out of Egypt, they don't live under the bondage of Satan anymore. They don't live under the bondage of sin in the same way. Now, let's just be honest. As soon as the Israelites get into the wilderness, what do they do? They begin to grumble and complain. They begin to look back and say, wouldn't it be nice to go back to Egypt? Oh, we could sit around the meat pots there. Wasn't that wonderful? And, and we read through Exodus and think, are you crazy? Like it was just a couple chapters ago. That was horrible. You hate it. You were oppressed. You were in bondage and slavery. And yet there they are pining to go back, and and we do the same thing. I think, wouldn't it be nice to go back into sin? I just want to have a little bit of that again. I just want a taste of that again. We lie to ourselves, and, and we place ourselves, we begin to live again as if we were servants to sin. This is how we fight that battle. Preaching the gospel to ourselves, using it as a weapon against our sin. Consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We just read, sin has no dominion over you. If the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. Do you believe that? Do we live that out? 
Next time you're tempted to sin, next time you feel defeated by sin, controlled by sin, overwhelmed by sin, fight it with the gospel. Proclaim the good news to yourself, to your sin. I'm not ruled by this sin. I'm ruled by Christ. Believe that. Walk in that. Obviously, it's a bit metaphorical that we proclaim the gospel to our sin. Your your sin isn't listening. But in a very real way, our freedom from sin, our transformed lives, our lives of obedience to Christ do proclaim on a cosmic scale to Satan and the demons. You've lost. Christ has won. He's broken the power that you had. And, And it's the display of the glory of God to the angels and the demons. And here's the great thing. Not only are we called to worship and called to action, trusting in and proclaiming this gospel to the world and to ourselves, but finally, we're called to victory. We're called to victory. We know how this ends. Read again verses 19 to 22 here. Sorry, I flipped over. Um, Moses writes, but I know, so this is, the Lord saying to Moses, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. And so I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall go, not go empty handed, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor And any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold and jewelry, for clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and your daughters, and you shall plunder the Egyptians. This is a great passage. What a neat development. Um, The Lord is not surprised, first and foremost, that Pharaoh is is up for a fight. In fact, if we skip ahead to Romans 9.17, it says the Lord raised Pharaoh up for this very purpose. Pharaoh, I put you in that place And I have hardened your heart so that I can pour out my plagues and display my power so that the whole world will see the glory of God. And and we'll see that as we go through Exodus time and time again, that Pharaoh may know that I am the Lord. Again, it's a revelatory act. He's showing who he is as God in his power. And yet God is totally in control here. He says, after that, He'll let you go. I will do what I need to do and and it will finish and he will release you. Verse 20, the Lord will strike the Egyptians with all of his wonders. If you've been tracking some of these kind of key words that we've been picking up on along the way, uh, I hope you saw this as we read through. If you remember back in 2.11, Moses looked on his Hebrew brother being beaten. And and we talked about that word looked, had a a sense of of compassion, of empathy. It was looking and and motivating to action. And so then 2.12, he struck the Egyptian slave master who was beating the Hebrew. He he killed him. He looked and then he struck. Well, verse chapter 2, verse 25, the end of last week, we ended on this point that God saw the people of Israel. It's the same word. He looked on them. And then here in 3.20, it says, I will strike the Egyptians. I'm going to act. The Lord's saying, I will finish what Moses started. I will show who the I am is by unleashing all of my wonders on Egypt. And then you will be released. No question in God's mind. 
And as they leave, God says that he will give the Hebrews this miraculous favor in the eyes of the Egyptians. And every woman is to go to her neighbor and ask for jewelry and clothing. And can you imagine how awkward that would have been? We've been your slaves the last 400 years and you've depended on us. We're leaving now after destroying your nation. Um, can I have your earrings? And that, that blue sweater you wore the other day, can I, can I have that? And they did it. They emptied out their closets. They emptied out their jewelry boxes and, and gave them to the Israelites. And the point is this, the Israelites plundered the Egyptians. That's a carefully chosen word. That's a, that's a military term. And it speaks of absolute victory. Complete defeat of the enemy. Plunder is what you took off of the dead bodies in the battlefield. Plunder is what you cleaned out of the houses once you had decimated an entire city. You would walk through and go, oh, this is nice. I'll take this. Because the enemy was absolutely destroyed and wiped out. God is saying, without lifting a finger, you will utterly destroy your enemies. I will give you complete victory. You will not only escape Egypt, you won't just come out of Egypt, but they will be wiped out. You will have total victory over them. They will be undone. We need to be careful here. We don't want to claim too much. As long as we live in this world with the battle of indwelling sin in our lives, that's going to be a reality. We don't have that complete victory yet. It's not over yet. God has not finished displaying his mighty works in Christ. 1 John 1.8, John writes to believers, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Philippians 3.12, Paul says, Not that I've already obtained it, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Jesus Christ has made me his own. So even Paul is still striving toward holiness. He's working to put sin to death in his own life. And so though Christians are freed from the dominion of sin, we're not slaves to sin. We do continue to battle with sin in our lives in this time. We ought to be growing in holiness. Our sin ought to be decreasing in severity and frequency as we walk closer and closer with Christ. But one day, that victory will come. It will be complete. We will enter into our promised land. And when Jesus returns and he, he finishes the display of his mighty works and brings us into his kingdom, that's our future. That's our hope. That's our guaranteed final complete victory, saved to sin no more. I hope you long for that day. I hope you're eager for that day. I hope that your heart fills with anticipation and joy as we think about that. It presses you back to, to worshiping this great God, to embracing this mission and trusting in Him and, and proclaiming this great gospel in all confidence that there is a final victory ahead, that I will not be ultimately beaten by this sin as much as I wrestle with it now and it's ugly and it's painful. The day is coming when it will be over. And how do we have that confidence? Because we can look back. We can look back at the stories of the Old Testament as God revealed himself saying, this is the kind of God that I am. This is the way that I save. Romans 15, 4, Paul writes, for whatever was written in former days, he's, he's talking about the Old Testament. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction 
that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So we're right to look back to Exodus and be encouraged by that in our walk with Christ. As we watch the great I Am rescuing His people, protecting them, providing for them in the wilderness, safely bringing them through to the promised land. We can have hope. That's the same God who will rescue us. The God who defeated Pharaoh will defeat Satan and sin and death. He's the same God today. For everything we've seen, there's more to come. What a great promise. We're going to close singing again the song that we sang just before the sermon, being reminded again, uh, finding our hope and encouragement in what God has done as we see these amazing works of our Lord to know this is the God in me. This is the God who says everyone who calls on me will be saved. And it points us forward to what's ahead. So would you stand? Let's close in song together.